Francesca Colombo is the head of the health division at the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD. She is responsible for providing internationally comparable data on health systems and applying economic analysis to health policies, as well as advising policymakers, stakeholders, and citizens on how to respond to demands for more and better health care. Prior to her 20 years at the OECD, she was the acting head of the planning unit at the Ministry of Health and Labor of Guyana. She holds a Master of Science in Development Studies from the London School of Economics and Political Science and a Bachelor's Degree in Economics and Management from Bocconi University. Francesca, good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. And how are you doing in Paris? How's life? Well, life is good. Uh, we have been quite busy in the during the lockdown. Um, I guess all of us are juggling between taking care of kids and doing work and readjusting to a new way of working. Yeah, I'm sure. And uh, that's probably what we're going to be talking about today, certainly, is how are things going to be looking in the future. If we're looking at what's been going on between containment and full lockdown measures implemented in many countries, they've had a significant economic cost. If we look at the projections by the IMF, we're looking at 3 to 5% of GDP in each country per month. Do you think at the OECD these measures were necessary? Well, the short answer is yes. And let me Uh, explain. Obviously, this virus, uh, it's a little bit of a tricky virus because of these characteristics. It's very um, infectious, so it spreads quite easily, much, much more than the seasonal flu, more than double the seasonal flu. It's not as deadly as SARS, the other coronavirus that Asian countries especially experienced around 2003, but it has, you know, a good case fatality rate, particularly for older population groups. And so what happens is that quite a large number of people got infected. And as you know, we don't have a vaccine, we don't have an effective treatment. And, you know, in a number of weeks, uh, health systems across many countries got overwhelmed. And so if you don't have a vaccine, if you don't have a treatment, the only way you can deal with it is through non-medical interventions. And as your health system is overwhelmed, Obviously, a lockdown, mitigation, social isolations are necessary to ensure that you can, uh, you know, make, make sure the health system can continue to, um, to function in a normal way. And, you know, we heard a lot about flattening the, the curve. This is what these measures are for, to try really to bring down uh, through sometimes painful restrictions to social and economic life, but being able to prevent a collapse of the health systems and avoid hundreds of thousands of uh, that. In several of the healthcare systems where they locked down, New York and London come to mind immediately, capacities were actually running 60, 65, 70% of normal. Upon reflection, do you think that maybe this was slightly overdone or do you still feel that in all the countries it was necessary? As I said, I think it was necessary. It was necessary because just health systems were overwhelmed. I think the key question would be how can we prepare for the future? because this virus is still around. Um, and so therefore, right now, obviously, numbers of infections are going down. Uh, the, reproduct- the reproductive number has come down in a number of countries. Uh, but the virus, as I said, is still around. And so what is going to happen in the months to come? What is going to happen also when we enter into the winter seasons? Uh, the key question would be, how can we better prepare so that we can have a comprehensive package of measures that can be put in place um, to limit the spread of the infections and avoid uh, finding ourselves in situations in which there might need to be 
other, um, you know, <laughs> lockdown or similar measures. So it's all a matter of like, it happens once, can we just work collectively? And that's what all the countries are doing uh, to try to put in place interventions that can reduce the likelihoods of uh, uh, a need for a future lockdown. Picking up on that point, Sweden has opted to take a path for herd immunity and kind of chose a different path. Do we see differences in the country approaches and was a herd immunity perhaps a better way to go if we don't get a vaccine? It's a very, very risky thing when you know that uh, this vaccine, is, this, uh, this virus, it's, uh, it's quite dangerous, particularly for people who have underlying chronic conditions, multiple chronic conditions, um, and those who are elderly. And so even Sweden, you know, everybody looks at Sweden as a dramatically different approach. But the fact to actually in terms of uh, the number of mobility and physical contacts that people had, these were substantially reduced even in Sweden, perhaps not from uh, a nationwide legal uh, restrictions of the sort that we see in other European countries. But remember that Sweden has got a lot of decentralized also system where governance is decided also at the local level, so leaving authorities, local authorities to decide, and also very much a strong role for social partners, employers, trade unions, and so forth. So um, de facto, perhaps there's been uh, you know, less difference in terms of the, the mobility of people across European countries than if we just take a face value the uh, the legal measures. Now, the issue is that right now we know more about the virus. At the beginning, we didn't know. So for countries, really, you know, it was very difficult to decide also when to implement measures. And as I mentioned, the key issues would be how in the future we can ensure that we keep that uh, spread of the virus to so the famous reproduction number of the virus sufficiently low, so below one or for some countries close to one. I suspect there could be still some differences in approaches for countries uh, that could be for different reasons. One is that some countries are still more badly affected than, than others, uh, but also the capacity of health system to absor absorb um, critically ill patients is different in terms of ICU capacities, in terms of work workforce that you need, of course, uh, also in terms of the strengths of community care services to avoid uh, other people get into hospitals that could be treated in primary health care, for example. Um, but also I think there might be a difference in terms of uh, acceptance of populations and tolerance. Um, some countries, if you take even China, are going really for a strategy of complete eradication, so no new uh, cases. Others might say, okay, we can accept some local cases happening, provided the overarching epidemics is under control and it does not make the health system unmanageable. So I guess there could be some differences going forward, but there are definitely things which are very common across countries, and those are to have those package of strategies that can reduce as much as possible the spread of the virus. So obviously, um, you know, hygiene measures, um, making sure that people can use masks, particularly in you know, public places where you know, avoiding unnecessary large gatherings of, uh, of people, um, so some social distances measures and also massive, much more uh, massive use of testing, tracking and, and tracing. So a much greater improvability to pick up any new um, cases that might come up very quickly, uh, identify them, isolate them, identify who are the contacts 
that they've been in touch with and do it much better than what we have done in the, in the first wave. And so that's what all the countries, and this is common across all the countries, um, despite the fact that there might be small differences in, uh, uh, in, in certain approaches, but all of them are working towards these uh, non-medical, if you want, uh, approaches to reduce risk of future lockdowns. Many countries were already having difficulties with the health budgets due to the demographic evolution of Europe, the aging population. And countries have dedicated significant resources right now just fighting the pandemic. Are we concerned or should there be concern that we will simply see healthcare as a cost going forward and there's going to be more cuts just because of the budget situation? I don't think so. And hopefully not. I mean, perhaps two considerations here. The first one is what we have seen and what this um, uh, pandemic has shown um, is that the cost of you know implementing even even take the massive testing. Yes, there is a cost associated with that in terms of having the reagents, the swab tests, the people who can do it and support. The cost of doing all of this is really so little. It pales compared to the cost of economic lockdown. And so uh, investing more in health to make sure that we prevent a second wave and that we can better manage this outbreak it's a very good investment if we manage in this way to keep the economy running. So that's an obvious thing. But I think it must be said that, you know, even if uh, it must be costly to do some of those measures to avoid future lockdown, there, this cost as, uh, uh, as a noted magnitude, which has nothing to do with the cost of, uh, um, you know, the economic and social cost of, uh, of a lockdown. The other issues has to do perhaps to more broadly to the to the realization of the importance of investing in health and that particularly in, in you know aspects of the health systems that can better protect people and so there's a lot of talk right now about the resilience of health systems for example and I think there is an issue of resilience of the populations as well and what are the approaches that can be done so that you can protect in particular vulnerable groups. And those are the very groups that were most affected by COVID-19 and who have the most severe con uh, consequences for it. So how can we address the underlying um, non-communicable diseases of the population? How can we reverse, reverse also the trends to have only 3% of healthcare budgets devoted to prevention um, and so forth? So this seeing health as an investment is fundamental, but also you know, what exactly do we invest in health? It's also particularly important. And so another issue is, has to do with trying to get rid of some of the silos. There are silos in healthcare um, between uh, hospitals, between primary care, but also think about the elderly care sector, the long-term care. Uh, the elderly people have been so incredibly hit by uh, this, this virus. And uh, I think some 90% of the death have been in the 60 plus. And so this speaks to the need to look also at the elderly care sector as part of the health systems and implemented the same rigor, even in terms of infections, preventions, and, and, and so forth. When did you folks at the OECD start seeing the data that this was primarily impacting nursing homes, residency centers? I mean, when was that apparent to you? The initial uh, uh, data on that collected by countries focused um, in particular on uh, hospitals, and also on people who had uh, had a confirmation that it was COVID-19, so who went through, through the testing. I think it's only more recently that the data has started to add also to number of deaths um, in the community, so in nursing homes, so it could be 
in, in other home care settings. Um, immediately, initially, the focus has been really on the, on the, on the death that happens uh, in hospitals, as I said, and those who were uh, with a confirmed case of COVID-19. Do you see the governments adapting to address this quickly? So we're not going to have these sort of concentrations in the rest homes? Yes. I mean, there's definitely been realizations uh, that there have been lots of things that happens in nursing homes and in the care sector for the elderly that must be addressed. Um, and I think when we're looking at this sector, there are probably even two elements of uh, vulnerability, if you want. There are the vulnerability of the people themselves. Those are elderly people. They're fragile. Some of them have multiple chronic conditions. Uh, but also there is the other exposure of the workers in these sectors who were not necessarily prioritized for receiving, um, you know, the protective, the, the personal protective uh, uh, equipments, uh, so masks and, and support. And so they were quite exposed at the beginning and many of them uh, got the virus themselves. And so I think that the crisis uh, has highlighted also some uh, issues in the elderly care sector that must be addressed. There are some structural weaknesses in the sector. Think about all the, uh, the the issues beyond the infection control aspects, but also the working conditions of uh, the people that work uh, in this uh, in this sector. It's a sector characterized by very high turnover, uh, low pay, uh, difficulties in, in retentions, uh, and it's a highly stressful and highly risky sectors. So I think there, there is definitely, uh, you know, a need and certainly governments are looking how to make sure that we can address more properly the needs of, of this sector, addressing, um, you know, perhaps even with appropriate health and training for those uh, um, workers, but also the health and safety conditions and more broadly the working conditions uh, of the sector. Yeah, I'd like to get back to one of the points you made around the creating capacity and flattening the curve. One of the things that countries have done was limit access right now to testing for cancer. I mean, essentially, a lot of preventative measures have been put on hold. Do you think that the attention may be diverted away from other diseases as we're moving forward? Are we concerned about this, that we're going to maybe drop the ball in some other areas of chronic conditions that we've not been doing a very good job at over the last few years? Yeah, I mean, there are different concerns. I mean, there are different issues, I guess, here. The first one is in the peak of uh, the outbreak. Uh, clearly, on the one hand, the health service is trying to uh, divert non-essential um, you know, services uh, to, to just delay them, think about elective surgeries and, and, and things like that, uh, because there was a need, obviously, to, to address the peak of COVID-19. Um, but, you know, I guess there are also, you know, the way, there was, in a, in a way, they were forced to, to reduce some of the non-essential medical uh, services, uh, but also there have been you know, reductions in even in vaccinations, in laboratory testing, cancer screening, and some of the routine care. Some uh, routine care. Some of it came from individuals themselves that decide not to seek care um, for a variety of reasons. Maybe they're afraid of being infected. They're worried about overwhelming the system even farther. They might not be entirely confident. Um, about what is going to happen to me. And so we have seen that. I mean, countries uh, have seen that, that the number of visits uh, in ambulatory, for ambulatory care services, for example, declined significantly, um, including, you know, United States and a number of uh, European countries 
Um, in France, where I live, uh, there are a number of medical appointments which are being scheduled uh, for GPs it dropped by something around 40%, if, I'm, if I remember correctly, and for specialist care, even more, like 70%. That's data from, uh, uh, from the on, an online booking uh, scheduling uh, uh, services that, um, that is available to people. So in a way, I think individuals themselves are delayed receiving uh, care. And there are definitely issues here about uh, when care is delayed, that is for conditions that might create a health risk. So whether it's for, for cancer screening, for example, um, there are already some data that might put some worrying about, for example, um, the so-called excess mortality. You know, that's a way to look at how much the mortality this year has been higher than what would happen in normal years you know, in other years. And we see that some of the data show that this excess mortality has not been entirely due to the COVID-19, but it could be due also to other conditions that went uh, under uh, attended, if you want. I guess there is another issue about the overarching attention for, um, you know, budgets in terms of uh, uh, even research budgets and whether we're going to see a diverting away from uh, uh, from other very needed health conditions could be other uh, other underpinning vulnerabilities, and it's quite clear that uh, you know we need to be very careful because the health needs are complex. Um, and going to the future, we will need to do probably a much better job at addressing possible outbreaks, but also uh, at continuing to provide needed care for people who have other underlying uh, conditions. Um, and other non-communicable diseases. So this double burden of needs must be uh, addressed moving forward, and it will create some challenges for health systems. Yeah, and you've mentioned another point as well, that is, even now with deaths over average, we don't really know what the drivers are. For example, in the Bay Area, now they're actually seeing higher suicide rates than COVID-19 deaths, and that's affecting the deaths over average. And this points to a much larger problem. The data collection and the data we have around the COVID-19 pandemic has not been that accurate. You personally, Francesca, are a big proponent of better usage of health data and are driving many of those programs at the OECD. Why are we having such challenges harnessing data accurately around the pandemic? What can we do better? Look, you're right. There's definitely a point that there's lots, lots of data going around and including in the context of these epidemics, we have seen an explosion of data and perhaps not all of the data um, is comparable as one would want. I mean, a, a word of caution, though. I mean, there is not straightforward as an exercise even to do a simple count of how many people uh, uh, died. Uh, for example, as I mentioned at the beginning, the death statistics were really picking up uh, those deaths from people who they were ab- admitted to a hospitals and who had ab- undergone a test. And so there's a difference between including also those who are dying outside of hospitals, nursing homes, or in the community, and also, you know, counting those who are suspected of having had, uh, you know, COVID-19 or who had been undergoing uh, a test and therefore is confirmed um, that uh, that they that they, uh, they had the virus. And so there there have been differences across countries and some European countries, to be fair. Um, even you know Belgium, France, Italy, um, if I remember correctly, 
they have uh, put a lot of efforts to very quickly improve the reporting procedures that they have and making sure that they include also the death that happens notably in in nursing uh, in nursing home. Um, and so I guess the the issues is that a better way of you know counting what happened is really to try to have better data, more comparable data on this notion of uh, um, more excess mortality that really tries to see, okay, how many people have died which would not have normally died. And that could be due to a mix of directly COVID-19 related deaths, but also could be due to other people um, that for indirect reasons might not have received care or might have themselves not wanted to, to, um, to seek care. Um, and so we're, you know, I do OECD starting to look at uh, some of those uh, those data, but I guess uh, even moving forwards, um, you know, a few months from now, even next year, we will have a much, much better picture of what exactly happened. So there are some technical difficulties, uh, I would say, but, you know, uh, definitely there are also opportunities for, um, you know, better jobs, perhaps, in, at the um, making sure that there are better comparable date, data uh, across the country. Yeah, and obviously part of the reason why this was so challenging was the high rates of asymptomatic disease was not known at the onset. No one knew that you could have 30, 40, 60% of the population walking around not presenting symptoms, which really complicated the initial diagnosis, it seems. What system should we in place to try and align the way we collect the data? I think there is a, a lot which has to do with things like coding, uh, you know, things perhaps that are less uh, exciting, you know, <laughs> but, you know, if you think about uh, national practices uh, related to registration of, bad, of death, this, this type of things are crucially important, of course. Uh, you mentioned the asymptomatic cases. Well, for those, the only way is just through testing, you know, um, and and so there's lots lots of efforts that countries have uh, been putting now on the issue of, uh, of making sure that all those who are suspected cases and their contacts are, are tested. And that will allow to have a much better picture um, of uh, individuals uh, who have the, the disease at the, at the moment. Um, so there are probably a number of things that, that, that needs to be done and can be uh, uh, you know, used and leveraged for, for improving things moving forward. Turning to the vaccine, you know, we currently don't have a successful coronavirus vaccine. We don't have one for AIDS. We don't have one for SARS. We don't have one for MERS. I mean, given the economic impact of the coronavirus, do you think we will get a vaccine? And what should countries do to try and make sure that that is a successful effort? There are lots, lots of efforts which are going on. So I, I cannot predict whether we will have a vaccine, but I'm quite confident that something, uh, you know, we, we can get to something and uh, hopeful like many, many, many others. I mean, there are lots of initiatives uh, going on and there are already a number of vaccines which are in uh, candidates which are in, in, in clinical uh, trials. So uh, the response from the research sides from both public and private sectors uh, in terms of funding has been enormous. Um, I guess the key issue here will be moving from those initial research uh, funding efforts and to, to really having a vaccine which is developed uh, and then it's distributed and made available to everybody. And that is not necessarily a straightforward process. I mean, if we think even the first SARS um, the you know the SARS-CoV-1, uh, <laughs> which uh, 
which really affected countries in the early uh, 2000-2003 in, in Asian support. There were a number of efforts that were done at the beginning to develop vaccines, but they never really um, were completed. So they were ab abandoned sort of midway before the completions. And this is because the needs, the outbreak really vanished. And so there was less of a need to sustain those uh, funding efforts moving forward. And, and I guess that's one critical issue that needs to be done in the first place. How can we make sure that we can sustain those efforts right now and until we are completed with the vaccine, regardless of whether perhaps at some point the virus vanish? I mean, we don't know what is going to happen with this virus. It's very, very well widespread across many different countries, so it will most likely remain around. But still, we need to make sure that we, you know, we have not just those research funding, but also incentives, which are more of a pool, so-called pool mechanism, which, you know, incentivize really the production of a vaccine which is accessible. And so, you know, I think there is quite a lot that governments can really do to, on the one hand, start projecting what will be the demands, um, start to put, uh, you know, different type of uh, uh, in incentives that can incentivize private and public sectors towards the development, really, of, of the products. And also um, that, uh, you know, can incentivize uh, those semiconductors to produce sufficient quantities of the future uh, vaccines. Um, because even once you have a vaccine, you still need to produce it. And once you have produced it, you need to make sure that it's distributed equitably across uh, uh, needed populations. So I think there is uh, quite a lot that can be done and where probably international cooperation can also have a role um, in terms of uh, you know, trying to incentivize uh, the uh, development of the vaccine and the completion of the, of the projects uh, in terms uh, of uh, incentivizing also the capacity, the production capacity, and uh, you know, perhaps also in a way which is coordinated uh, across countries in terms of agreeing on rules for how to distribute um, the, the eventual vaccine which is produced and even looking at um, agreements upfront on rules of intellectual property rights or rules of procure procurement, avoiding some sort of bidding wars across countries that might otherwise uh, arise. At yeah, and that's a really interesting point because what we have right now is a real lack of manufacturing capacity for vaccines as that's not been an area where there's been a lot of investment. If you look at what happened with Oxford's trial product that's teamed up with AstraZeneca, it was actually the U.S. government that stepped in with a $1.5 billion, shall we say, investment in manufacturing capacity. Should Europe be trying to do more to ensure the manufacturing now, even if we don't have a product? Because it takes you know three to five years to build a large fab with a filling unit to be able to satisfy that demand. I don't think it's a matter of Europe versus uh, US versus, I think there is a need for much more coordination internationally uh, to really try to, you know, step up efforts towards, uh, you know, investing right now in, uh, uh, in the manufacturing capacity. There are different vaccine candidates and uh, they use also different platforms. And so they might require uh, different type of uh, productions, uh, uh, capacities as well and productions uh, modes. And so, you know, Right now, we don't know which one is going to be successful. And so they're, 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 it's in the, in the interest of everybody to try to make sure that we um, create the conditions for having enough capacity to produce, 
regardless of which uh, candidates or maybe candidates, there might be more than one are successful. Yeah, but that's the challenge with any drug development is that you need to invest before you get the product, unfortunately. If we're going to have a three to five year lag on manufacturing, which is potentially possible, there will need to be some sunk cost here where Yes, you're right that, you know, if it's an RNA vaccine versus a non-RNA vaccine, those investments, some of those investments may be lost. But wouldn't it make sense to be proactive? Well, that's where pool incentives can, uh, can really help, uh, you know, because they, they're really uh, around uh, incentivizing the, the productions of, uh, uh, of the finished products. Um, and so they give some certainties also to, to, to companies. But yeah, there is definitely needs to think about the, the production, and it is true. Um, you know, at the moment, uh, it's unclear which and how many uh, of the vaccine candidates will be successful. And I guess it's in the interest of everybody to try to uh, invest upfront uh, right now, even if we don't know which one is going to be successful. There were some early warning signs in December regarding the pandemic. The Taiwanese made some overtures saying, hey, we got a problem here. There was a lot of movement on social media in late December by many of the doctors who were working in China saying that there's something going on here, but yet a lot of those signals were missed. What changes can we make systematically to ensure that we can have a coordinated rapid response in the future? Well, there are lots of efforts obviously would be going on in trying to address the issues of responsive mechanism and so forth. I guess from my perspective, it's quite important to look at the opportunities that we can build and leverage from the digital data, um, which can really help with better preparedness and, and, and surveillance. And so one point that we have been at OECD trying to work a lot with is how to make sure the data are not trapped in, in silos. At the moment, we have a huge amount of data collected in health systems, um, but they're not linked at the individual uh, level and they are not available and generated in real time. And so if we can better leverage data and information systems and improving also the timeliness of the data and their integration, we, we, have, we are in much better positions to uh, pick up early signs that there might be perhaps a pandemic coming up and also make sure that we understand what works best for different patients, for example. And so there is a huge need to make sure that we want to standardize National electronic medical records, for example, that we can extract routine data for real-time surveillance of disease, but also for other purposes, whether they're for clinical trials, to support research, to support health system management, and so forth. And so that is an unfinished agenda, and there are lots of countries which are working towards that, but I think there is a lot in terms of technical and operational, as well as governance readiness that, uh, that needs to be uh, accelerated. And I think data preparedness is really is going to be uh, is going to be key. And in a way, what we see that the countries that have uh, they're doing or better uh, from this front are the ones that did quite a lot of homework, if I may call it, uh, in this way. So they did invest strategically in health uh, data, in health data systems. They had some very clear goals as well for using digital tools of data. They communicated even with the public about. Uh, those goals, the procedures uh, which are put in place for harnessing those data, and so they had, you know, not just an investment in te technology, but also in the human institutional capacity that you really need to be able to um, use data 
with the speed and at the scale that, that you need. And so, uh, in a way, it's like once you have those elements, uh, you're in a better position to face up also to you know a shock, um, like in the case of a, of an epidemic. Um, there are obviously other uh, opportunities that you have once you have all these uh, um, background work and homework, if you want, that, that you've done on the data, is that you can then foster also use of data through artificial intelligence. And there are many, many uh, that, that can be thought here, you know, think about being uh, doing much faster and better job um, for identifying treatments or, or, or vaccines, um, you know, possible molecules that could be candidates, or even to have systems that can help you diagnose um, any disease, including COVID-19, much more quickly and with fewer errors, or even, uh, you know, trying to link real-time uh, data from multiple different sources to have, uh, you know, much more, uh, you know, faster uh, early warning systems uh, you know, and even being able to communicate with individuals themselves. So opportunities are really quite quite there and they're huge. Um, there is an unfinished agenda again here in terms of health data governance and improving the health data governance uh, um, in health systems, yeah. So final question then, if you were given carte blanche, if you had the choice between approaching it from a technical problem, a regulatory oversight problem, or an operational problem, what would you attack first then? For the health data, I think the governance uh, side, uh, it's, it's a critical one. So, and it's a mix of uh, um, you know, privacy, respectful use of data, making sure that that agenda is completely addressed, but also some of the very important technical aspects in terms of the quality of the data, in terms of... Uh, um, uh, the, the way we use uh, language, for example, which is similar and terminologies which are similar um, and comparable in terms of all those uh, aspects which are more technical but are fundamental. So you need to go with both. You need to work through the more governance um, aspect of it, but also you need to address some of the technical uh, weaknesses that we have at the moment. Well, Francesca, I know you're busy and uh, I'm really grateful for your time. Thank you very much. Thank you very much to you.